welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. My name is Paul Matthews, and today I'm bringing you a conversation that I had with my brother in the Lord and my brother in the flesh, Stephen Matthews. He's a teacher in the high school up at Launceston Christian School, and we're talking today about how to be as effective and efficient as we can as Christian educators. Now in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says that we, uh, the people of God, we're God's handiwork. And we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do or for us to walk in those good works. And there's so many good works, aren't there, as a Christian educator that we have prepared for us. Now, I listen to some of my friends who work in secular environments, and I really applaud their tenacity and courage. But I also realize that the opportunities for them are far more limited than they are for me working in a Christian school. They're they're hoping and praying and asking God to give them opportunities to share the gospel with some of their non-Christian colleagues. Or maybe uh, if the opportunity arises to pray for some of their non-Christian colleagues. And I look at my own practice and not only does my job involve sharing the gospel with non-Christians and praying for non-Christians, that's what I'm required to do. That's actually a feature in my contract. Now, There are so many good things I have before me as a Christian educator. But you're also juggling many things as a school teacher, aren't you? You've got your planning and your preparation and your marking and your staff meetings and your pastoral care meetings and your parent-teacher meetings and your report writing, of course. And then your continuous professional development if you really want to be on the ball and then your duties and your rosters and the list goes on. And it goes without saying, I think, that they're not getting in the way of our job. They They are our job but they must be managed. We have so many good opportunities. Uh, Yet I think if we're not careful, the complexity of our job can really cloud our vision. We, We have to be intentional and efficient in the way we spend our time. If you talk to any educator, they'll tell you there is an infinite amount of work to do. And that can be very overwhelming. You work and you work and you work and you give all you've got and there's still more to do. Maybe that's one of the reasons why teacher burnout is such a big deal. Depending on who you read, as high a percentage as 42% of teachers quit the profession in the first five years. Now, it's my hope and my prayer that as you listen to this conversation, you'll be able to take away some really clear, applicable strategies that will help you in your calling as a Christian educator. Well, Stephen Matthews, welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Well, I often tell people, uh, so you're my younger brother for context. Yes, one, one down the line. I often tell people, uh, so our dad was a teacher, and my influences in teaching would be, I think, 65% dad, 35% you. Great. Because you were actually in it before I was. Absolutely, yes. And you've been up at uh, Lonnie Christian for actually quite a while now. Correct. Yeah, this is year number 10 at Launceston Christian School. I started here in 2013 uh, as a teacher aide, did three years of that. And then this is year number seven as a teacher. Uh, I have started grade seven, eight coordinator this year, uh, really enjoying that. And that was a good shift, um, shift in work and focus. Uh, I mainly teach middle school, so I was primary trained. Uh, and teach grade seven eights and an 11, 12, level three subject at the moment. Yeah. That's my spread. That's not bad. So you were just saying you've just moved into this seven, eight coordinator role. Now I know many schools, they've got a year seven coordinator and eight year, year eight coordinator and so on. Um, and particularly in the schools that I've seen, the year seven coordinator is a tough job because you're really um, shepherding kids from primary schools and not always your feeder school so you've got kids coming from all over the place um, and then you're trying to sort of integrate them into this homogenous mix in year seven all of a sudden they're in different classrooms they've got different books different teachers so year seven is a beast but you're actually doing year seven and year eight at the same time correct yeah so this is the first year 2022 first year for lcs to run year level coordinators 
and the way that they decided to break it up was a 7-8 coordinator, a 9, a 10, and then an 11-12. I've taught grade 7 only, or grade 7 core, for the last uh, 7 years, and 6 years, and it's been, so knowing every grade 7, I feel like knowing that transition well from primary into secondary, um, it's about two-thirds from our own primary school and then about a third from other schools. Um, really doing that many times and I feel like and I hope that that's been refined over the years and then to grade eight. The conversation was had around this might be two jobs but first year round, let's let's do it, let's give it a rip and we'll, we'll find out. So yeah, I, I think it works well. It's nice to have continuity from the sevens to the eights, run some programs for seven, eight. It really was a pretty strong grade eight focus. Our grade sevens have a grade seven block. Uh, they've got a lot of grade seven programs, special grade seven things. Uh, year nines have a lot of the same. So a, a big focus has been giving grade eight an identity and a purpose and some quite unique grade eight things that people look forward to and look back on and say that was something special about grade eight, yeah. That's fantastic. And yeah. it's interesting that you mentioned that there's potentially two jobs there because that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today. Sure. When I think about your influences on me, I think about the expectation of um, how much you're willing to let teaching dominate your schedule. And one of the things that I remember you talking about while I was still in teacher training at university doing my master's was you were saying you were trying really hard to get all your work done in work time. So you had a very low tolerance for it spilling out into the evening, um, you know, multiple nights a week, eating dinner, marking papers, watching home and away, grading tests, uh, these, sorts of, these sorts of things. So that's, that you would say that's been a distinctive of yours for quite some time? Uh, yeah, and helpful to identify context here. Like I'm, I'm one teacher in one school, in one sector, in one state kind of thing. And for me, I, praise God, have had the freedom to, to build some, some systems and some routines and some curriculum that I don't do any teaching work at home, mm. ever. So I, I come to school, I'll often be at school quite early. So I'll come in early. Um, for a bit of further context, I'm, I'm a dad. I've got two daughters, I've a wife um, at home as well. So it's very much a thing of teaching, I believe, will take as much as you give it. It'll just take, and if you allocate a set amount of time uh, and really are quite strict on yourself, I find that keeping it to that work stays at work, that, that's a really good boundary. Um, and, and that relies on a whole lot of stuff. It relies on pre-planning. It relies on uh, building in times in your week and in your month and in your term that says, right, here's a deadline, let's hit it. Uh, here are de mini deadlines in the week. And hitting, ticking off, I feel like the small stuff, the, the big stuff comes together a lot better. Um, and just being ruthless. A lot of the stuff that we expect of our students and we teach our students, we say plan ahead, Where's your time? What jobs have you got on your schedule? Um, as teachers in our jobs, we're incredibly gifted in that we get to identify deadlines, identify assessment tasks. We get to rewrite assessment tasks if something isn't working. We get to lay out a schedule ahead of our students and actually be in control of that. And I feel like if we're proactive as teachers, we can pave, pave the way and say, right, this is coming up that week or that afternoon or that day is, is allocated to that and really being quite ruthless with our planning. Um, I'm a believer in the, the fact that we make our habits and then our habits make us. And I've really tried to get in the habit of just staying, staying on top of stuff, getting work back to students quickly. Um, a trade-off of that and something I've had to focus on in my own practice is getting the work done at work often involves just really been quite ruthless with my school time, whether it's planning periods, whether it's recess, whether it's lunch, whether it's time before school, time after school. I, my nature is to grab 10 minutes and, and rip into a job. Um, so, sometimes I've taken that too far. Sometimes I need to relax and walk the playground and uh, connect with staff and just have a coffee. But I have probably more in my teaching pracs seen examples of staff 
that will congregate and chat and that's good and that's great but then be, be really quite put off that they then have work to do at home. It's a trade-off, isn't sure, it? Teaching sure. is a zero-sum game. In fact, sure. I guess just your day is a zero-sum game. Sure. Spending time on one thing necessarily means there's yep. an opportunity cost. You're not spending it on something else. Totally. Um, and of course, not every teacher, I think of some of the, particularly the science and maths teachers I work with, yep. they just have a phenomenal amount of work to grade. Uh, sure. And so I don't think it's a realistic goal, perhaps, for everyone to get stuff done in work time only. But I guarantee there's not a teacher out there who can't look at their schedule and go, I think I can do that more effectively. Sure. We can all move the needle. Sure. Uh, there, there's areas where we are actually able to identify perhaps inefficiencies. Because you're exactly right. Teaching is not like, for example, bricklaying. Mm. I mean, uh, to use a different job, I used to be a window cleaner. Mm. You, you clean the windows and then they're done and you leave. Yep. So that it necessarily is limited yep. uh, in the amount of time you can give to it. You, you just finish the task. You're exactly right. Teaching is a black hole. There's sure. always things that you could uh, modify. You could be working on more differentiation. You could always be working on curriculum compliance or planning more creative assessment tasks or learning sequences. Sure. It, it will it will grow if you continue to feed it. So sure. you need to you need to limit it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You have some sort of boundary there, don't you? Yeah, and of course identifying parts of your day and parts of your practice that are rich and meaningful and valuable to to parents and students. And saying I'm gonna I'm gonna knock out my parent emails, my parent calls, student connections, etc. Uh, and then identifying bits where you say I'm actually wasting a fair bit of time here. I reckon I can streamline this. And and having done most of my subjects um, several times over, saying right, let's let's streamline this. Let's do this assessment in a way that this happens. Let's teach that section in this way. And of course. We never want to get into the concept of I want to do less work. It's I want to do good, rich, meaningful, powerful work for students and do that well and do that effectively and also recognise that I wear the hat of a husband and of a dad and of a church attendee and of a, a son and a brother and all of that and and to, to be a, a whole person and, and to share that time around. And also the self-care in that, the idea that... Um, making sure we're exercising well, making sure we're eating well, all of that. Um, it sounds common sense, but of course when the rubber hits the road, it's really a matter of planning out your week, planning out your month, planning out your term, your whole year, and nailing that down. And, I've, and as everyone would know, teaching is a game of curveballs, and if you can build in some leeway that says, right, especially in a, in a middle management job, in any kind of pastoral position, you're gonna have curveballs come across, and you say, right, the whole day has just been put on hold because we have this situation and let's go and address that. That's, um, you're exactly yeah. right. Schools are like that quite often. Yep. I remember planning in my first year, I managed to analyse the curriculum because I didn't come into the job with any lesson plans. I was, sure. I was teaching um, five different subjects. There were no lesson plans there. So I had to go back to the curriculum and plan a few things. And I guess in my naivety, I got my content descriptors, I mapped them out, uh, mapped them out onto different weeks and then all of a sudden you've got swimming carnival, and you've got the athletics carnival, and then you've got the year nine camp, and then you, and you go, crumbs, I'm actually, I've hemorrhaged three and a half weeks without realizing. That happens uh, also, as you said, in the pastoral context too. Um, someone's had a shocker of a weekend at home, or someone's left a mean comment on their TikTok page and they need to be talking to you for an hour, yeah. all these sorts of things. So actually building in the margin because one of the things that can uh, lead teachers to burning out is not necessarily the workload. It's a feeling like this car has no brakes. Sure. Like I have got no way of slowing this sucker down. And so you're sitting in your office when you have an hour and you're almost like a deer in the headlights yeah. because you're just stunned, you're, over, you're overwhelmed. Yeah. And that's something that a lot of teachers feel. So you would recommend actually building in some margin, not scheduling every second. Totally, I I think so. I I try and block out periods for for catch up. Um, try and really efficiency is always the goal, and I, I try to not take this too far. But even with staff staff catch ups, I've I've we've started having whole grade seven core meetings this year, rather than 
having to find times to sit down and meet with three different teachers who are our grade seven core teachers to say, right, this period in the fortnight, let's meet, let's sit down. Uh, that's penciled in, that's blocked in. If we need the full, full block of time, great. If we don't, that's fine. We might get together for 10, 15 minutes, but at least then we know that period of the fortnight, we sit down, we catch up. People are flicking minutes through for that meeting in the whole fortnight leading up to it. And then you're not trying to madly plan a grade seven meeting because this issue has come up. It's there and it's gonna happen. And you say, great, let's discuss that Monday morning. Let's let's get into it. Uh, and then I, I think communication efficiency is a huge one. The amount of emails that come in every day, the amount of conversations that are had, the amount of uh, phone calls, all of that, just finding ways and so many different contexts for teachers um, and so many different settings and, and setups, but finding ways to really be efficient with communication, um, I think is crucial because hours and hours and hours and hours can be, can be lost in repeating info, communicating info badly, emails going south. Um, so trying to do that well. That's a really good point. I think I put, I installed some tracking software on my computer and it made me realize how much time I was wasting on email. There's an expectation at my work, my school, you check it twice a day. And so I check it twice a day. I don't have it open in a tab. Because sure. it, just, it just happens, even if it's just the mental dislocation of being involved in a task, seeing the notification pop up, going in, check it, read it, don't need it, archive it, back, and you're five minutes behind. Sure. You, have, you have to get yourself back in the zone. Yep. Um, now, to pick up on what you said about efficiency being the key, I think... Yep. There are going to be some teachers who hear that and say, that's mechanistic. We're not, we're not machines. Efficiency well, is in a school with so many moving parts, um, really a, a goal that doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think knowing you and knowing your practice, you would, all, you would say also, um, you, want to, you want to maintain, you want to be effective yeah. with what you do. Um, you, you don't want to pursue efficiency at the cost of being effective. Totally. And so you're, you're seeking to be as effective as you can, but to, to be that effective, mm. if you could do that in 15 less minutes a week, or if you could um, streamline some of your processes mm. and actually not have that detract from effective teaching, that Absolutely. is the goal. Yep, yep. Now, I 100% agree with that. And of course, efficiency of a, of a task that's assuming that the task is built in the way that it is as academically rigorous, as meaningful, as powerful, as scripturally grounded as possible. We're not about skimping. We're not about doing the easy option, the quick option, the, the safe options. We're about doing stuff really well and then figuring out how we can make that happen in a timely and effective manner. And often there's many, many other benefits that come with that. So for example, if we're getting marked work back to students within three days or four days of submission, straight away, student is getting a more timely feedback. Straight away, parents are picking up on stuff within the week rather than, oh, hey, three weeks ago, your, your son or daughter did this work and here's some feedback that's now three weeks old. For our own practice, we're then, we're then trying to deal with one task, marking it, getting it back to kids, done and then we're moving on to the next stuff. And that's of course one very small example. Also identifying the areas of the teaching practice that can be tightened up and streamlined and still to the highest efficacy. But the other stuff, you're right, that you just say, I have no idea where this is going, I'm blocking out the time and it, it'll just take it where it goes. So teachable moment comes up, yep, let's follow that route, Let's. Let's pull at that and, and see where we end up. So yeah, building in the stuff that can be made more effective and the stuff that can't. And uh, I, I love to have, have 15, 20 minutes at the start of my day blocked out just to get on top of emails, just to have stuff cleared and say, yep, I'm, I'm on board with that. I understand that. Uh, our learning management system has got pastoral care notes in it. So if, I'm, if I can be reading them rather than heading into the day a bit blind, a bit unsure of what's coming, hearing a comment like, oh, you read that note about Johnny, and you're going, uh, no, I haven't, then darting off and reading it, coming back, 
etc 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 picking up that conversation with that staff member or student etc um, just trying to stay on top of stuff at the start of the day start of the week um, and planning knowing what's happening We've, we're all aware of the difference between proactivity and reactivity as teachers our own practice our colleagues our our students our family at home benefits so much from us being proactive from looking at our week and saying right that's happening Wednesday, that's happening Thursday. Uh, I'm probably gonna have a heap of kids missing at the, at the musical on this day, and then building around that and saying, what's a realistic and uh, valuable learning goal based on the fact that we're losing two out of our five maths periods this week? It's a really good point. And I think you touched on something there uh, that bears repeating because the teaching game has changed. Sure. I mean, if you, if you talk to old timers, and I talk to them all the time because I'm fascinated with what the profession looked like 30, 40 years ago. Um, it was far less regulated, A, uh, and, and B, sort of transparent. So they've got their uh, teacher's chronicle, their physical book. They've got their lessons and plans and everything in there. They take that with them. They teach their lesson. Um, there might be, there's still parent meetings. There's still marking work. But if you think about the things that have happened now on top of that, there's basic things like attendance every lesson. There's emails coming through constantly. There are uh, pastoral care notes that get put on your learning management system that everyone has to read. There is the learning management, self, uh, learning management system uh, which sort of represents your curriculum and your online lessons. Um, and so not only are you teaching everything, you're having to represent that in a way that someone, if they're away, because that's happened a bunch over the last couple of years, sure. are able to get themselves um, from A to B in your lesson as well. Yeah. So the conversation around efficiency for teachers and uh, being as efficient as possible, it's a necessary conversation because I hear from teachers all the time that you've got, you've got your plate, people are putting more and more on the plate. Every year, every two years, there's a new expectation um, upon the teacher and not a whole lot in that same time has actually been taken off the plate. Sure. So it's just getting more and more full. Yeah. And I, I guess all of those examples you've raised are all tools and just, just like a hammer, it can be used for really good stuff and it can also be cause a lot of damage. And the, the art I think is finding what the value is of this and all the examples you gave, there's really good benefits to that. So for example, email, I can now flick an email out to all secondary staff, which might be 50, 60 staff members, and they all get it within the minute. And if we re rewind the clock 30 years, if short of a PA system, you're not getting around to 30 staff, 40 staff, 50 staff, and giving them an email that says, hey, hold this, shift that, move that, or even asking a question, has anyone seen this kid? Bang, flick it out, 40 staff members have got it within 10 or 15 seconds. Uh, same for our learning management. If we can have all of our stuff up on there, a student has, let's say, got COVID, they're at home, they're able to access good quality content. It's all up there. It's easy to look at that stuff and say, this is how it's made my job harder. I, I'd encourage people for a lot of stuff, let's look at how it's made, made our job a lot easier. Um, access to resources. The fact that we have literally, well, not literally, or effectively limitless access to online resources. People say, oh, I've got to go to this website and find this and find that and jump onto Scoodle and jump onto um, Teachers Help Teachers or whatever and Teachers Pay Teachers. The, the benefits of that are also massive and we can, we can have all that prepped, we can push that out. We run a few online programs now um, and you might say, oh, I now have to mark on style or mark on Maths Pathways as well. The, the benefits that they bring are huge. And as a school looks at new programs, new systems, new ways of doing stuff, identifying this is how we can save save time, save, save well, make learning more effective um, for our students and our teachers. It's a really, yeah, I like that a lot. There's an element of just a base level of gratitude, a base mm, level of definitely. thankfulness. You can always view um, these tools or resources um, as an impediment Sure. to your teaching, when yep. in reality, they, they actually might boost you further and faster in the direction you are already 
going in. Certainly. Now, as, as we get to the, uh, the twilight of this podcast, Stephen, I'm very keen to try and lay down some really practical steps, some good pedagogy habits and practices. Yep. I think if you were able to create a pie chart of where the time sinks are for the teachers, um, or whether at least the time is getting spent, marking has got to be right up there. Sure. Marking sure. is huge. Um, if you're marking essays, you might be, you know, if you're grade nine or 10, you might be reading 25,000 words. Sure, that's um, yeah. It's it's huge, and it's not something you can do away with either. It's Absolutely. we don't want to look at that like we were just talking about as an impediment upon your job. No. It actually is your job. Definitely. So it has to be done. One of the things I was talking to a colleague about this uh, in the week, a colleague called Kyle Fifield, and he said he's really honed down his feedback. Yeah. It made me realise that a lot of us um, are oversupplying feedback. The demand is just not there. If we're writing two paragraphs of feedback on an essay, yep. or if, if we're giving red marks on every little spelling mistake, every lack of punctuation, every grammatical error, that's a, a level of supply to, for which demand isn't present. Yep. One of the things he started doing and noticed really good results is saying, uh, thank you for your work. Here's one thing you did really well. Here's one thing you want to improve on next time. Yep. Overall, you can be proud. Yep. So he's, he's, he's saying, all right, um, you did a lot of things well, but here's one thing. If you do that in every essay from now until you die or Christ returns, that will be good. Yep. And if you never do this second thing ever again, yep. that will also be really good. Sure. So he's, he's painting um, with pretty broad strokes, yep. but it's, he's finding that students are actually getting it. Yep. Rather than getting their own little mini essay back from the teacher, sure. and they're looking at that and they're going, "Nah, I'm not reading that. That's I don't have time for that, or I don't have headspace, or I just can't be stuffed." Yep. Um, so I found that to be uh, I've incorporated that over the last couple of months, an incredibly effective. So it's it's still effective. You're still giving great student feedback, yep. but it's efficient yep. too, and that's exactly the uh, the line that we're hoping to walk well. Yep. Yeah, certainly, and I also think bringing it back to criteria and saying what am I actually looking for here um, and exploring that with students and viewing marking as as a farmer going and checking his harvest and actually saying I've put, I've put in work here, the student has put in work here, how does this reflect on my teaching? It's it's actually not 100% a reflection on students. Um, how What areas of my own teaching practice do I need to shift? Uh, if there was generally very poor understanding of this descriptor I need to emphasize that more and actually be a be a farmer and go around and say hey this this element worked really well that element didn't let's let's change that of, of course a huge amount of it is student learning and how they've done and bringing it back to effective feedback we we use a system on our learning management called CAMI which brings up a digital version of the essay so you can go through and highlight um, really quickly highlight and annotate. And I think annotating is a beautiful thing. Rather than writing a comment that says, in the second paragraph, on the third line, when you said this, when you said that, try and swap those around, try and not use those words, phrases, whatever. To be able to highlight, students can see the comment in context on their work, exactly where you're, you're intending them to reference it back to. Um, things like that, and that's a school-wide system, so whenever students submit written digital work, you can respond with that highlight section. And then you're right, keeping a really distilled written comment back, that's been fantastic. And again, th this comes back to this idea that different teaching roles, different teaching subjects have really different loads. And sure, English teachers might be marking 20, 500-word essays or 1,000-word essays, that's 10,000 to 20,000 words straight up and then you're actually meaningfully responding to that, um, really looking for ways of saying, how can I do this well? How can I reflect student knowledge, uh, understanding back to them? And be because if you're doing it ineffectively is not only uh, a time suck, it also results in pretty poor quality feedback. It says you're, you're fatigued writing the comment, you're writing the same generic thing back many, many times. Um, Everyone wins when, when stuff is done efficiently and effectively, for sure. Absolutely. 
another thing, so that's a humanity example. I was talking to a yeah. maths teacher, yeah. and you've taught maths in your time. Mm. Um, and so he was basically saying, he looks at other maths teachers, uh, and he shall remain nameless. Um, sure. He looks at other maths teachers, they're marking everything all the time. Sure. And so they're constantly carrying a stack of papers, they're constantly up late. And he says, he looks at that and goes, no way. Sure. He gets, he gets students, he gives tests, yeah. He gets students to mark the tests. Okay. And I said, well, what do you do with the inevitable people who want to chafe around and give themselves an A+. Plus? He says, look, I've taught these students for three, four years. I know who they are. Mm. He's, got, he's got three or four tests he checks, and then he'll do a random audit of one or two others where he'll go and confirm their marks. But effectively, they sit their test. He'll collect them up. Collect them up. Next lesson, the tests go back to the same people. So you get your own test. You're not actually looking at someone else's test. That could get a bit dicey. Um, and he goes through the answers on the board, tick, cross, tick, so on. He gets them all back. They write their percentage at the top. He audits you know, the three people who he thinks are likely to muck around and also does a random audit. So he's actually marking five tests um, and he's able to give students a, a sort of lesson of an overview of that topic again, as they go through and students are able to raise concerns, oh, but don't we carry this in that direction or so, whatever. Uh, so it's actually, he's found that to be a very rich learning experience, the lesson where they're marking, because they can have good conversations and make necessary clarifications. But also, he's marking six tests instead of 20. Uh, so that he's, yeah. he's basically, he's doing a quarter of the work for the same result. Yeah, and I guess if you can if you can guarantee consistency and equitable feedback and marking in that, there's obviously some yeah variables in that. But if for that context and learning area coordinators and that are signing off on that, then then game on. I, I like the first comment you made about actually looking at course requirements. How how much assessment am I required to do? Um, for our full-time courses at LCS uh, in, in the middle school, it is five marked, annotated, uh, rubric-based assessments per semester. So if you have it for five periods a week, uh, you do five per semester. Um, and looking at it, that's you know two, two and a half per term, basically, a two-term semester. And when you look at that, you're saying every seven weeks, sorry, every four weeks, I'm, I've taught math. Um, every four weeks, you are doing this. So it's once a month and nailing down with kids, right? Every four weeks, we're going to be hitting this and going for that. I, taking over the sports science course at this school, um, found they were doing fortnightly tests every two weeks. So I looked at it and said, well, going by the task assessment requirements, we're, we're required to do three assessments per unit um, of the four units for the year. Why are we assessing every single every single fortnight? And it was this bit of thinking that said, a fortnightly test has been done. It's always been done. Let's let's do it. Let's continue it. And to step back and actually say, what's required? Can I do less better? Can I do less assessment but make it richer and more meaningful and deeper for students to actually re receive their feedback and go, yep, this makes sense, and and do that in a way that of course still meets all requirements, but is most effective. That's really good. Yeah. And, and tailoring your assessments to meet your criteria yep. is incredibly effective. Sure. I was talking to a teacher who teaches Task 3 English, and what she says is that um, in some of her assessments, what she'll do is she'll get the person to write a, a full introduction, a full first paragraph, a full conclusion, and the second and third body paragraphs, they'll be dot points. Because at this point, she knows the student can write. Sure. Right? All it is, it's a time suck on the student to continue to write this stuff um, and sort of student welfare and levels of anxiety and levels of overwhelm and overload, that's a conversation for another time. But um, she's very in tune with that. So she'll say, look, look, you, you don't have to write 1,500 words. Write me a solid, a really good int introduction and conclusion and first body paragraph. Give me dot points for the other two because I know you can do it. Yeah. And she's actually able then to say, uh, that that will do. That will do. Um, you'll be able to give me everything I need to be able to competently assess you, um, especially if the criteria um, are not specifically about writing. Sure. There's a whole bunch of um, sort of content-based criteria. Yep. 
which aren't to do with um, writing elegant sentences. So you can even use the dot point method to help you out there. Totally agree. And, And it's that thinking that, Many, many, many teachers are doing this now in many subject areas, but when, when can this task be spoken? When can this task be presented to a class? When can this task be made into a short movie? When can this assessment be uh, flashcard based? Can, can students submit a piece that shows me, yep, I've got these key understandings? Um, and with such a broad curriculum that we can offer to our students, uh, the assessment should look different often. Of course, written and paper-based tests still have their place, but let's make it various and um, let's have our students responding in different ways, for sure. That's that's great. I remember in my first year of teaching towards the back half of the year, I just for some reason, I couldn't even articulate why, I didn't set out to say I'm only going to assess using essays. That's basically what I did. And I remember just wringing my hands and going to a colleague and he suggested in-class presentations yeah. and so the students are still getting the same information yeah. they're actually representing their learning in creative ways yeah. um, and that and that actually caters to some of the strengths of students who wouldn't be able to represent their knowledge as well in a traditional essay totally. so there's an element of differentiation yeah. there and you have the whole thing marked before they walk out the door at the end of the lesson because you go click 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 on your rubric and as they're presenting you're able to give yeah. your, your feedback on the learning management system, yep. and you go, wow, that could have been three afternoons of marking essays. Yeah, and depending how you build it, it can actually be a very rich experience for the rest of the class. So for example, where you do a recovery unit in sports science, there are 12 recovery methods. I had six, six students this year. Each student was given two recovery methods. They became our class expert on those two recovery methods, did all their research, all their writing, all their presentation on those two. They presented to the whole class. Every student attended every presentation and actually received an in-depth presentation on every method. Uh, They were the master of two and they shared their their knowledge with everyone and then they received two two recovery methods from five other people uh, and got those 10 back. So that was gold. And also how much of our life that we're trying to prepare students for is verbal, is oral, is go out and talk to that person in that job interview, go out and chat with that person in that business negotiation, go out and interact with a customer on the other side of the desk. Um, For students to gain that confidence, uh, and our students speak so much and they are required to speak so much, let's assess that and assess that well. And of course, different subject areas it, it applies differently. Um, you know, speech and presentation, acting in drama, of course, is far more applicable than in a math setting. Um, you're probably not going to speak your math test, but um, looking at how we can do that. That's good. And, and one of the things, the, a common criticism of an oral presentation is everyone who's done it is relaxing and enjoying life, mm. having completed it, and they're not, they've tuned out. Everyone who hasn't done it is freaking out because they're about to give an oral presentation. Um, so no one's listening. One of the ways that I've been able to combat that in consultation with some colleagues at Calvin, uh, we do feedback sheets. So every student gets a feedback sheet and they get to say, okay, I'm, I'm, I say, I want you to mark group two. Or I might say, I want you to give feedback to all the groups. So there's six groups, say six groups of three, uh, you're, marking, um, you're marking all the groups on this feedback sheet. It's got a rubric, it's got a, a comment, um, and that way I've found they're actually engaged. They're not just rehashing the opening three lines from their presentation, hoping to get it down pat. Sure. Um, another thing that a friend of mine has done is said, okay, each expert, so you've got your two recovery methods, um, one member in the class is going to be their sort of peer review. So they'll have to send the notes over to their peer reviewer the night before, who will give them some feedback, and then in class, the peer reviewer will also give them feedback at the end. Sure. So so just helping, aiding that investment in the moment as well. So so it actually is, because I'm doing the exact same thing with World War I at the moment. I broke down, instead of doing a 300K an hour hurdle through World War I, I broke it down into seven key moments. I've broke my class into seven groups, Yep. And we're going to have a full class presentation, which will be the chronology of the key moments of World War One. Awesome. And so, 
it, it takes a lot of stuff off my plate and is really rich because students are not students are learning from one another and presenting to someone that's not just the teacher right. and the literature shows us that that's actually where some powerful learning happens yeah. I think the last one the last one I want to share before we wrap up I've been using you've been teaching the same subjects for a long time um, I'm getting there sure. but in the first year co- learning the content was tricky not all not everything you learn at uni um, in your undergrad degree or in your specific um, the parts of your degree where you're focusing on your specializations not all of that um, maps directly onto Australian curriculum content. Absolutely. So one of the things, I've developed a little thinking routine called the quarter hour expert. Okay. Where what you do is you basically go, um, I'm writing a topic on the board, I'm giving you a quarter of an hour, you have to become an expert. Your first three minutes, you're writing down questions. What do I need to know? Your next 10 minutes, you're going, you're doing your research. You're finding answers to those questions. The last two minutes, you're polishing it up because after the quarter hour, I'm gonna spin a random wheel of names. They're not random names, they're names of the students in my class, but you, you randomly um, allocated. And if you get picked, you have to come up and present for one minute on that topic. Are kids doing different topics, all the same topic? All the same topic. Okay. So instead of me doing 10 minutes of direct instruction about um, the Battle of the Somme in World War One to get people really geared up and the juices flowing for the next learning activity on the Battle of the Somme. Maybe I, maybe I don't know it that well. It's my first year of teaching World War One, So instead of, you know, it, to be able to talk about something for five, 10 minutes, it might take me 40 minutes of research, you know, and that's for five minutes of one lesson that week um, to be able to wrap my head around it and do this. So one of the ways I've thought uh, is, is you'd run that thinking routine and then they all know it by the end. And they've, they've um, asked questions of it, they've done their research, they've spoken it to one another in a speech three or four times, and they all actually leave with the key information about that. Would you give them the research resources or, or just? For differentiation. Yeah. So I'll, I'll find two good links with some simple text, yeah. um, and I'll have that on our learning management system. So the, the classic spiel would be, um, I want you to research. If you're not comfortable with research, I've got two links yeah. where the, most of the questions you ask, yeah. you'll be able to find answers to. Yeah. I've found that incredibly powerful. They say in, in education, the one who's doing the thinking is doing the learning. Absolutely. So if I'm up the front giving this fantastic direct instruction about the Battle of the Somme, that's great, but some kids could just be sitting there picking a scab tuned out. Yep. While I'm taking myself yep. through these high points. so Yeah, well, the value of student-directed learning is uh, uncontestable. We, we know right through from kinder through to grade 12 through to university, um, if the student is in control, if we're actually in the role of facilitator as teachers, we're, we're alongside these students. Rather than a ship's captain telling people what to do, we're actually alongside in the trenches with kids as they learn, uh, facilitating learning rather than downloading or streaming our learning to the kids. Um, student-directed learning is has for a while and continues to be a really hot topic uh, for good reason. That if kids are invested in their learning and active and actually participating rather than receiving, uh, that's, it brings, brings about good learning. That's fantastic. Well, Stephen, it's been fantastic having a yarn with you. There's a lot more we could go into, but I'm very confident that uh, there are some good habits and practices here that if, if teachers are able to implement, if we're able to continue to implement, um, that will allow us to be as efficient and effective uh, in, this, in this work that we are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And the last note I'd make is keep good context. You know, we're all familiar with the story of pulling up at the traffic lights in your 1990 Camry and looking right and seeing a Ferrari and thinking in that context, geez, I'm on a I'm in a bit of a rust bucket here. And then looking left and seeing a hearse and thinking, oh, I've actually got it, got it really good. And I think when teachers keep good context, when we look around at A, teachers in other environments and scenarios and B, other professions around us, I spend a good chunk of time with a wide range of professions and actually thinking, wow, the thing I get to get up every day and do 
is invest in young people, see development, see growth. I can do it in a safe and uh, an efficient and effective workplace. Keeping good context on our profession is so important. Um, there's different ways that different people do that, but I think the, the, there are so many perks of teaching. It's such a privilege and an honor to work with young people and, and sculpt futures. I love that as a profession, we deal with, deal, our work is dealing with people at their best. When they're learning things, when they're kicking their first footy goal, when they're riding mountain bike in Derby for the first time, when, they're, when they first learned to read down in prep, these are the highlights of children's development and that's when we deal with them. It's, it's not as if we're in other professions when you only see people in the worst chapter of their life, think nurse, think lawyer, think doctor, uh, we actually see kids throughout their progression and we, we're there to celebrate with them, we're there to congratulate them, we're there to actually bring about that development um, and teaching, it's an absolute privilege. That's a really good point. Um, do you want to close with a story? I remember you said here at LCS you had some builders directing new classrooms and you were just telling me how much having those builders on site was helping you keep perspective with your teaching load. Totally, totally. Roll, rolling into in a school that... 7.15, 7.30 in the morning, these boys have already been here for a full hour. They are busting themselves, moving, moving gravel, moving concrete in wheelbarrows. I would never say that teaching is not hard work. Teaching is hard work. Teaching is, it requires full engagement, full investment, full mind, body, soul work. But looking across and thinking, it's actually an incredible privilege, the conditions we work in that we're in dry, warm, safe classrooms. We're engaging with kids that have access to flushing loos, that have access to running water. Um, looking across at these builders and they're just totally busting themselves. And for me to think, oh, you know, do I feel like going in today? It's like, well, I'm not lugging around the maximum one rep max of concrete in a wheelbarrow on loop until the end of the day as a bit of a wind-up toy that's wound up for eight hours, runs around, runs around, runs around, and then goes home. Um, the hours are fantastic. I get every single dinner with my daughters and wife at home. I get every single breakfast, if I want it, with my daughters and wife at home. I have every weekend at home. As teachers, we do 100, next year we've got 194 contact days out of 365. Of course, you work outside of that time. Of course, you work, you're working your tail off in that time. But to have 194 out of 365, just over 50%, I think it's an incredible privilege. It's, a, it's an excellent workplace. Uh, even even the, the concept of upcoming work, as a permanent teacher, you are guaranteed full-time work for the foreseeable future unless something significant changes, unless you have a significant life change, significant practice hiccup a significant or, or you pull out yourself it says we have got work for you for ongoing forever un, until you say stop or until some, some curveball happens a, a builder a sparky a plumber is looking at a, a two-week contract a three-week contract a three-month contract if a builder could say i'm going to sign up for this and that is my work guaranteed for the next 30 years for us to step back and look at that and say, wow, I can build a life on that, I can build a family on that, I can really make some forward-focused decisions on that. The fact that we, we, we need to be physically able and, and capable in, to, to do our work, but we don't see a lot of teachers having career-ending injuries, busting a knee and then saying, oh, I can never teach again, <laughs> like, like we would with a lot of other careers. Um, and keeping context on that. If, if you're looking for problems, you'll find problems. If you're looking for things to be thankful for and to rejoice in and to say, this is a rich and valuable and appreciated and joyful career, you'll find those as well. It, it's a real privilege. Yeah. It's that idea of sort of whatever you aim at, you'll hit Yeah. in the end. And that's, yep. a, that's a good point. Not, not that sort of... Um, Kmart, be positive, live, laugh, no, love. But no. again, when we ground ourselves as Christians, um, we know God's using all things, is working all things together for our good. Certainly. We know that um, we get to spread the good news. Yep. Into, we get to proclaim all of Christ over all of our life and Absolutely. do that publicly. Um, man, yeah, 
the amount of friends I have going off to jobs at the tax office or in some branch of government and they are bursting at the seams wanting yep. to be able to share the gospel yep. and they can't because they'll either get fired for it or it, it will be, they can share but it will be absolutely career ending. Yep. It's actually part of our job description to absolutely. share it with unbelievers every single day. Absolutely. And so there's opportunities like that where you just go, this is unbelievably good. Yeah. And the concept that our social narrative, especially through the university system, through the school system often even, is how much work do you do and how much do you get paid for that work? And they're the two questions that were asked. Well, we ask of careers. Whereas now that you're in the career, we can actually do things like how, how rich is the opportunity to share, share the gospel? How often can I relate with and connect with people on a, on a meaningful level? How joyful is my work? How uh, glorifying to God is my work? And asking those questions, personally, you, you've got to be built for teaching. If, if, you're not a, if you're not a, if social interaction isn't your thing, if connecting with other people, if communication isn't your thing, they are the core tenets of teaching and you've got to enjoy that stuff. So I'm not saying that everyone here change your mindset and you'll love teaching. You've, you've got to be, you've got to have those core, um, core elements, but to have a job that you can openly, like you said, openly and we're actually encouraged. It's not just do it if you want. It's please do this. Please sow into the lives of young people. Please show them Jesus. Please invest in their eternal future. And and that's that's your job. That's part of your job. Um, it's great. And looking looking in return, the the life and the the habits and the routines you can build on professional teaching is, I think, outstanding. That's absolutely right. There is that X factor of being able to have your head hit the pillow at the end of the day, and you go. In light of eternity, in light of what I know to be true about eternal life, day well spent. Absolutely. And that is that is fuel. Um, well, Steve, fantastic to talk with you. Uh, it's it's good to continue to hear your ideas around teacher effectiveness, teacher efficiency, and, and uh, look, God bless you in the rest of your educational practice this year. Thank you very much, Paul. I uh, appreciate being on the podcast, and I'll be sure to tune in for this and many more episodes. 